Hi everyone. Thank you for thank you for coming. Uh, my name is Lisa McGlynn. I'm an attorney with a law firm called Fisher and Phillips. We specialize in labor and employment law. So when I was looking at the schedule today, I saw a lot of wonderful, very nice sounding topics about you know re you know connecting with your congregations, and I really felt like mine might jump out like a sore thumb a little bit to you guys. And of course, my hope is here that none of you will ever get sued. But the reality is. <laughs> that might be why some people have chosen to be here, because one's, one's bitten twice shy. Um, but the reality is there's a million different ways to be a wonderful church and a wonderful employer. And there are a few ways that we see most often as where people can go wrong. And oftentimes you go wrong without even realizing that this is a risky thing to be doing. So that, yes? Can I record this? Yes, I, I think I'm being recorded right now, but I don't honestly know where that recording goes, so if you'd like to record as well, you. knock yourself out. And likewise, if anyone has questions as we go through this, feel free to either raise your hand or just jump in. Um, I'm planning on powering through this. We have about two hours to go through, unless anyone would really like me to take a break halfway through, a formalized break. Feel free to come and go if anyone needs to get some water or snacks and, and we'll be good to go. Now. The number one best tip I can tell you to really set yourself up for failure as a church or for any organization is to not be picky in hiring. Now, a lot of times when you go to fill a position, there's a million other things you have on your mind, a million other things you need to do. And it can be easy to think of hiring as something you want to do quickly, bring someone on board, hope it works out, hope for the best. Maybe you have a friend who you know their cousin is out of work and looking for a job. And it can be very easy to rush into those decisions. Can you speak up just a little bit? Yeah, I'm sorry. I think I'm, I'm not even sure if I'm using this microphone right or not. Can you hear me at all? Okay. I'm not that good at technology. That's my downfall. But can you hear me now? Okay, if you can't, please just let me know. Right. Your employees are going to be your best asset. They're going to be definitely what you want to have, put a good deal of effort in making sure that you're bringing the right people on board for your church. Now, for risks, for the hiring process, where things can start to go wrong off, right off the bat, a lawsuit by an unsuccessful applicant. Now, this can really catch you off guard when you're thinking, oh my gosh, I'm getting sued by someone I didn't even hire? How is that possible? And unfortunately, it is not as uncommon as you might think. These would be people that you um, either didn't even select for an interview or that you brought them in for an interview and you hired someone else. And that's why saving those applications, saving you know, why you made the decisions that you did, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes, can be important to stave off those kind of lawsuits. A future claim for a breach of contract. Now, in a lot of areas in most employers, there are no contracts. I don't have a contract, for example, with my employer. But churches, I found, can oftentimes be really different. A lot of times there are contracts with your ministers. And so having, making sure that your contract that you have in place, or that you might have in place, has been reviewed by a lawyer, that it has some good language in there. And as far as if you're going to terminate that, either that position or that minister, that you have the ability to do so based upon the contract in place. And definitely the most common, without a doubt, risk about hiring is hiring the wrong person for your church. It can affect morale, it can affect church attendance, and it can set you up, up for different litigation down the road. You know, my family is recently new to the Tampa area, and when we were looking for a church, we called one nearby. The person we spoke with 
was wonderful, was so welcoming and encouraging. And just talking to her, that one hire for the church, really led us to want to go to that church initially. So that's why I think every position is really important and needs to be taken seriously when you're deciding on hiring decisions. Now, red flags, when you're hiring someone, these are really geared towards when you're looking at someone's application or your initial um, dealings with the person. These would be things that you're going to want to, at the very least, follow up on when you see. Incomplete responses. If someone can't even fill out a job application, that's a red flag. Did they just forget to list why they left their last job? Or do they not list that reason because they don't want you to know that reason? Making sure that you review the application and seeing these things is important. Employment gaps, that can be a red flag. It might not be. Maybe someone took time off to go to school, to raise their family. It might be a completely justifiable reason for why there's an employment law gap. But if you see that, you have a right to follow up and ask why. Job hopping for me is the number one red flag. If I see someone has moved jobs every year, every two years, that is a huge red flag for me. And it's different. You know, millennials tend to move jobs more easily than you know, baby boomers, or certainly the greatest generation did. But if you're seeing that very often, that's gonna be a red flag for you. Are you possibly bringing someone on who might be looking to leave or cause problems very quickly after they start? Career changes, relocations, that can go either way. I mean, maybe someone was a lawyer and they you know, get super sick of it and they want to go work for the church. Completely understandable. What if someone was a lawyer and they got disbarred for embezzling client funds? That's a little bit different. If you see things like that, follow up. Likewise, see resume. If you have an application, and I really recommend an application for every position, seeing resume, incomplete responses, not good enough. We want them to answer all of our questions so that everyone is reviewed on the same playing field. Reasons for leaving. This was someone laid off, terminated, resigned for personal reasons. Once again, this might not be a bar for you. It might not ultimately be a red flag. But if you see that, you should at least follow up and ask for more information. No references, not much of a problem if you're hiring an 18-year-old. If you're hiring a minister, you know, you want someone who has some good references that you can be reviewing. Transportation, you can definitely ask someone to be able to have reliable transportation to get to your church. That is an absolutely reasonable requirement to have, and you can ask about that on an application and the job process interviews. Mistakes to make during the interviews. The biggest one, you get someone in there, they look good on paper, and you spend the whole time telling them how wonderful your church is, what a great place to work is, and really selling them on the job. They should be doing 80% of the talking. You really want to get as good of a sense as you can from this individual, because this is really your one chance to get that feel. Is this person going to work or not? You know, asking questions to call for a yes or no answer, not super helpful. Getting more into a dialogue with the individual is what you want. Now that being said, sometimes you have an applicant who just you, know, you click off, they, there's someone easy to talk with, you might spend the whole interview talking about how much you hate the New England Patriots. Totally reasonable, I understand that. Mm -hmm. But it's still not getting to the point of answering the questions that you have a right to find out about. And again, going back to the last slide, if you have red flags that you've seen, Get answers to those questions when you're doing the interviews. It can, you can, this is the time where you can ask sensitive questions. 
And I'm really a big believer of going with your gut as well. I think we all have a feeling when we meet someone, we talk with them, is this person going to be a good fit or are they not? And I do believe that sometimes you should go with that. Frequently, we'll have a case where things have gone horribly wrong with an employment law situation. The hiring person will tell me, I knew we should never have hired them. Now the easy question is, so why did you? If you have those feelings, think for a second and determine if you should be going with those feelings or not. Now the one caveat is that last line that um, sometimes you know, if you're the hiring person and you tend to hire everyone who looks exactly like you, they're the same gender, they're the same age, they're the same race, that might be a little trigger to yourself that you might want to be a little bit more broad in your hiring practices. But otherwise, going with your gut, I do think, is a good, a good piece of advice. What are some other impermissible uh, reasons to hire? Well, just various things. One question that we get a lot is, you know, what was, you know, where is your accent from? When did you graduate from high school? All those questions can go to certain, certain things that you don't want to know about, their age, their national origin, um, asking, a, asking a, a woman, you know, do you have kids? Do you plan to have kids? Whereas if you might not ask that same question to a male who's being interviewed, those would all be questions a bit of a, bit of a red flag or, or could be on the road. On those kind of things, if you have mm -hmm. a, a, a series of questions mm -hmm. that you simply say, whoever comes in here, we ask all of these questions. Does that make them okay? It makes them better if you have a reasonable need to know that. Um, you know, if you're working in Miami, for example, and you want to know if someone's bilingual or about, you know, where they're from, that would make more sense than if you're someplace else and you don't really need to know that information. In general, if you have a feeling like, gosh, I'm not sure I should ask this question, don't ask it. Be my best advice. And, and I'm going to be going through a lot of material. I just wanted to say, I'll do presentations entirely, for example, on the hiring process. So I'm just kind of giving you a general bird's eye view of some best tips to take back with as far as things that could potentially be issues. But if you leave here today and you think, gosh, I still have a ton of questions on this particular area, please feel free to reach out to me. I have business cards in the back and I can get you more detailed information on all of the topics that we're going to be going through today. Um, and bottom line, why do you want to hire this person? A great question to ask in an interview process, tell me about your current job. Tell me about your current manager. If they hate their current job and they hate their current manager and they hated their last job and their last manager, that's a good indication that's how they're going to be talking about you one day. So that's one of my best tips for anyone who's interviewing is ask that question. Now, just out of curiosity, how many people currently do criminal background checks for the new hires? For, for I think, well, usually for most churches they see at least we'll do it for some, some individuals. And I think that's great for multiple reasons. But I will say for a, a few reasons, you want to proceed with caution. Now, what I mean by that is if anyone here has a policy that says, if anyone has any criminal conviction on the record, we will not hire you. That is a bad law. That is a bad policy to have. What you want to do is exactly this. Consider the actual conviction at history and the position that you're looking for. The nature and seriousness of the crime. Was somebody convicted for you know, a, a use of marijuana, not in Colorado, I suppose, but in a different state, or an underage drinking conviction, or was it you know, convicted of you know, trying to murder their coworker? Those are different. We want to consider what, what the positions are. Relation to the position's functions and qualifications. Maybe a DUI five years ago might not be a bar to one of your positions, 
But if it's a position transporting children around for, for a school, that maybe would be a bar. Number of occurrences, one time versus 20 times. It makes a difference. Applicant's age at the time of the conviction, how long has gone by since then, and what they've done since then. All of those are things that you want to consider before you bar someone from, um, from, being, a member of your, from being a member of your church family. Um, if you just have a policy, any conviction, we're not going to consider you, we're not going to hire you, the courts have challenged that. The EEOC has challenged that as being an illegal policy. Business necessity. Um, be definitely careful to get information and be careful to avoid disparate treatment. And what I mean by that is the EEOC, which is the Federal Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, has taken the position for a long time that looking at criminal convictions can be a discriminatory practice for any employer. And that is based upon <laughs> statistics alone, someone who has someone who, who is African American or Hispanic is more likely to have conviction on the record than someone who's Caucasian or Asian. And so that's why having a blanket bar policy can be considered discriminatory. Likewise, a lot of states now are passing something called ban the box initiatives. Have you guys heard about this? Which actually makes it illegal under state law or local law to ask questions on the face of your application. You know, check yes or no, have you ever been convicted of a crime? Now, yeah, and it's a lot of places. It's, starting, it's growing more and more and more. In Florida, which is why I practice, it's not state law, but some local towns have started to pass that as well. So if you're you know, a congregation or really any employer that might operate in multiple locations, your application, one place, might be illegal somewhere else. So that's why it's important to know what the law is in your individual location and also consider if you want to ask that question on the face of your application or if you want to hold off, wait till you have a conditional offer of employment, and then ask that question. Doing it at that stage is considered okay pretty much everywhere. Now, arrests. I'll tell you where the arrest is going to come up. It's not going to come up for a new hire. That's not when you're going to get an arrest question. Arrest questions are going to arise when you have a current employee who all of a sudden calls out of work one day, and then you start hearing through the grapevine that so-and-so was arrested over the weekend. And the question that you're going to call someone with and it's going to ask, what do I do? Do I fire this person? Do I, you know, you know, do I suspend them? It's just an arrest. Right now, it's, it's America. Arrest doesn't mean that you're guilty. But can you terminate? Can you suspend? Yes, you can. What I recommend, though, is talking with the individual first, getting their side of the story. Occasionally, I suppose, it's never actually, I've never actually seen it happen personally, but it could happen that it was completely a case of mistaken identity. Someone's identity was stolen, for example. They didn't do this to deny it outright. You might say, okay, take care of what's going on with you when you still have a job, and let's, let's know how it works out. If someone was arrested for something truly horrible over the weekend, let's go with child pornography. I have no problem whatsoever with you terminating their employment. You can also suspend them barring the outcome of their court case. Those are some reasonable steps to take. Now what you can consider also is if you have a policy that says you know, any kind of conduct that um, you know, brings the church into disrespect, things along those lines, might be reasons to terminate someone for arrests. Now this is not a common scenario, but we're seeing it more and more often, which is why I at least wanted to mention it's something that people sometimes don't know what to do when these situations arise. Now another really, oh yes, but isn't that considering them guilty until proven innocent? Well, you're not a court, though, is the, is the truth. I know, but it seems 
You don't have to fire them. You don't have to, but you can. I think, you know, Zane, if someone was arrested for shoplifting a soda from 7-Eleven, I'm probably not going to tell you to terminate them. But if it's something more significant than that, really going back to those initial steps of, you know, what, the, what was the crime, what was the position. But the question that we get a lot is, am I technically allowed to do this? And the answer is yes. I want you to take those steps, do your due diligence, talk to the individual. But if it's something that you would feel comfortable terminating them, I often tell people, go ahead and you can do it. On the suspension, can it be, be allowed suspension without compensation? Yes, yeah. Generally, you can do whatever you want unless there's a state law barring you from doing that on that particular issue. In Florida, there's the sky's the limit. There might be a state law, a local law, prohibiting you from doing something based upon arrests, but there's nothing federal law or, again, where I am in Florida that would prohibit you from doing that. A super easy way to get sued, not worrying about wage and hour laws. This is very common, probably the number one way that we see lawsuits. People don't know that they're paying someone improperly. They don't realize that they're making mistakes. And I could be up here talking to you all day, maybe all week, about various technicalities with the wage and hour laws that can cause you to get sued or have concerns. I'm just going to go with a few hot topics that we see people frequently make mistakes without even realizing that they're making a mistake. Off the clock work. These are for people who are paid by an hourly basis. So not your ministers, not someone who is truly exempt, but someone who is being paid hourly. Someone, you know, an office worker, clerical staff. Um, if, they are not, if they are doing work off the clock and they're not getting paid for it, that is an illegal violation. And under the FLSA, big things to take home is that if you go wrong with the FLSA, even unintentionally, you, the, people, the person is due all over the back way, double that automatically, plus attorney's fees. So these cases always settle because of the attorney's fees issue. And I'll explain that. You may have done everything right all along. This person is owed a dollar in back wages. Their attorney is owed $100,000 for taking it to court. That's why these areas of the law are very frustrating and very important, making sure that you're doing everything as carefully as you can. And one common way that people go wrong on this area is, let's say you have an assistant who can get their email on their phone, or you're texting them at all hours, asking them questions about work. If they're doing that frequently, they should be recording it, and they should be getting paid for it. If someone is truly an hourly worker, I don't recommend that they're able to check their work emails on their phone for this exact reason. There could be problems with them doing so. If they're allowed to remote access into work, if they are taking a huge amount of time to log on to their computer in the morning and not getting paid for that, we've seen lawsuits for that area. And frequently people think, well, gosh, I've never had an issue before. I'm not going to have an issue now. But if that was the case, we'd be out of work, my law firm, because we get calls all the time for this exact area. Now, this is a, a real treat for a lot of employers to realize that if their employees are not keeping accurate records, it's still on the employer's duty to make sure that they are. In other words, I have a case right now where someone told me, well, gosh, if they were working off the clock, that's on them. They, you know, they were supposed to record their time, they weren't doing it. Not the case, it's on us. If we either know or should know that someone's doing work, if we're texting them for again, again, for example, off the clock, and we know that they're coming in on the weekend to get work done, if they're taking records home with us, we know that they're doing work. 
And even if they're not recording that, we're still on the hook for ensuring that they're paid properly for that time. Um, not doesn't work, see no evil, hear no evil. If you know about it, you have to react. Um, really, the only exception is if someone is so actively trying to hide this from you, if they're hiding under their desk when they see you come by to keep you from knowing that they're working, that's really the only defense we have to, it's on them, they should have done this, they should have known what they were doing. Otherwise, again, all of the pressure, all of the expectations is on us to be controlling this issue. So some suggested practices have a policy that says you need to be paid for all time that you work. You need to be recording all time that you work and really enforcing that. You know, every so often it'll make the news that someone was fired for working through their lunch hour and it seems incredibly harsh and it is. But from doing what we do, I can understand why if you tell someone frequently, hey, record your time, hey, don't work during your lunch hour, and they keep doing that, the reality is that it does put the church at risk. Now, I don't recommend you go back and fire everyone who's working on their lunch hour, but I do recommend that you make sure that they are actually taking that lunch, that they're not working off the clock, and if they are, that that time is being recorded. Should that be done in writing? The policy, yes. Yeah, and, and if you're doing a discipline. Well, if you catch an individual doing it, then give them a letter or something. We're going to be talking about documentation down the road for best practices overall. I would say the first time I'm fine with doing it verbal, but I would say after it, if it occurs, then I would put it into writing and maybe redocument that the time that you talk to them verbally, and I'll explain that down the road. Now, meal and rest breaks. This is another you know kind of a hot topic. Now, rest break, meal breaks are not required under the FLSA and they're also not required where I am in Florida. Why well, say we say we can work people around the clock as long as we pay them. But there are states that do require you to give someone a meal break. And that meal break must be completely relieved from, from work. Someone can't be working and you're saying, hey, what's that paper that I needed? Or hey, can you run this or make this telephone call for me? That's not a relief from work. If they're doing something during their lunch break, they're really gonna be entitled to be paid for their entire lunch break. They should be completely relieved from duty. Shorter rest breaks, smoke breaks, coffee breaks, 20 minutes or less, those should be paid. If you're letting someone take those, we should be paying them for, for taking those. Um, and avoiding automatic deductions, that's a big one. If you just automatically take an hour off of someone's pay every single day for their lunch, that's a problem. Because I guarantee you, people aren't always taking that full hour. Some days they're working through it, some days they're taking more than that, but you wanna make sure that they're clocking in, clocking out for lunch, and that it's not just an automatic deduction. Now volunteers is another hot topic for, for churches. Um, because for a couple of reasons. One is someone might be coming and, and volunteering and then turn around and say, hey, I was actually an employee, where's my money? We had a case in my law firm last year on that exact issue. Now it was a small matter and it was you know, just for one employee, but that can end up being a bigger issue. Likewise, if you have employees who are coming and volunteering their time, they can in certain situations, but you can't have someone working as a bookkeeper who works you know, 40 hours for you as a bookkeeper and gets paid, and then comes and works in 20 hours as a bookkeeper and doesn't get paid. That would be a problem, that would be a violation. There was actually a really big case that just got this um, finalized last year out of the Sixth Circuit where there was a church and the minister was really encouraging all employees to volunteer for like a local a restaurant that they are running offside of the church. Have you guys heard about this case? Mm -hmm. 
and they were basically strongly encouraging them to, to volunteer, Just going up in front of the pulpit and saying, you know, God wants you to volunteer. If you're not volunteering, you know, you might, you might be judged for doing so. And so the Department of Labor took the position that those employees were coerced into volunteering. And the initial trial court said, yep, they weren't really volunteers. They were owed $200,000 in back pay for church volunteers. Now, the Sixth Circuit actually just reversed that and held, you know, gosh, these, these employees were not expecting to be paid. They had no expectation of payment. And so, therefore, forget that $200,000 award. However, I can promise you it was not cheap for that church to get to the Sixth Circuit to begin with. So volunteers and churches, you know, take a look at what you currently have in, in practice as far as who is actually volunteering. You might just want to think to yourself, you know, do I feel comfortable with this? Or do I see any possible red flags that I might want to discuss? Now, on the same line with FLSA is just making everyone an independent contractor. That's a really good way to get sued, I can tell you that right now. Um, and an independent contractor, there's a couple different tests for determining whether someone is, in fact, an independent contractor. There's the IRS test, economic realities test, right of control test, all of which are relatively similar and really focus on things like whether the individual's work is an integral part of the employee's business or service. You know, as a church, we have an integral part of our service as being ministers and being spiritual and you know, representing, uh, representing our congregation. It's not someone who's mowing our lawn. That's not what the church is designed to do. It's not painting the, painting the walls or painting the church. So that makes more sense that someone who does those tasks would be more likely to be an independent contractor versus someone who's coming in and working as a, a, a teacher at the school or something along those lines. The amount of the individual's investment in facilities and equipment. A true independent contractor, they own their equipment, they own their, their, their truck or their, their, um, their uniforms, and they have the ability to make profit or loss based upon how hard he or she works. In other words, they are not dependent solely upon us, solely upon one church to make their, um, to make their business profitable. They are more dependent upon themselves to go out, do good work, and hopefully get multiple organizations that are using them. They will consider things like their initiative, judgment, skills, whether the relationship is permanent or indefinite, and meaningful control of the individual exercises. Now, one of the first times that I gave a presentation similar to this to a church group, I got a question that I wasn't expecting to be such a hot topic, which was the issue of a music director. And that was a huge topic, apparently, as far as whether or not a music director is an independent contractor or an employee. And the answer is incredibly not satisfying, but it's, it depends. Many courts have taken the position that a music director who really is under the control of the church, we tell them kind of you know, what we want or they work solely for us, is an employee and not an independent contractor. But that might not be true for you. You might have an independent contractor who works with multiple churches, really can do their own thing, really can make their own you know, independent decisions. They might be an independent contractor. So that issue, a music director, has been played out frequently by the courts. But the most common answer that I've seen is that more often than not, they're considered employees. Now, safest thing is always going to be to have someone as an employee. 
the government, they want employees because they want those taxes. And it's much more likely that they're gonna consider someone an employee than an independent contractor. If you have a lot of independent contractors, that should be a red flag to you to make sure that you are classifying them correctly. Now, what documentation? This is another big one, not just for churches, but really for all, all employers. You know, we all, all get cases sometimes where someone is suing an organization. I'll get the personnel file, and it's like, like five pieces of paper in there, one of which is a termination form that says they were let go for performance. Nothing else. I have no idea why they were let go. I have no idea what the performance issues were. And that is a problem. You know what's a bigger problem? When they were let go for performance and they were a 10-year employee and there's nothing to explain what they did wrong or what the issues were. Or even better than that, where I do have performance evaluations, all of which are excellent, and yet they were let go for performance. Those are all definitely good ways to not only get sued, but to get your checkbook ready to pay a big amount to avoid a more costly litigation. Now, managers, if I'm this across the board, can often be unclear with employees about performance expectations. This is oftentimes you see inconsistency with what we have on the documentation and what they have, you know, what they'll tell us after the fact were the issues. And the issue can also be with not timely documenting issues, timely documenting concerns. And I understand this. I mean, nobody likes to sit down with their employees and tell them, this is what you did wrong, these are our concerns. That's not a comfortable conversation to have. But the risks are that when things go wrong and we haven't done those steps, there are problems not just for that, the church in general, but for that employee, not having the time or the opportunity really to know that they were doing something wrong that could have been addressed. Should yes. all documentation be shared with the employee? Not necessarily. That would be ideal when you have something that you want them to sign as their counseling statement. But there are times, and I'll talk about that, as okay. when you want to do a memo to file. Now, managers are also not consistent, and inconsistency can kill you in employment laws. You know, there might be an employee that you just kind of like. You're more likely to let it slide if they do something not quite right, or you just say, oh, that's just Joby and Joe, don't worry about it. But the issue is that we really need to be consistent across the board. And if we have a policy in place, and hopefully we do have a policy in place, that we are following it. Another big issue would be health information. Definitely do not joke about health issues and don't joke specifically about mental health issues. If you're joking about people going postal or someone, oh, they're just being crazy or things along those lines. We see a huge issue with, with that as far as litigation. People are much more likely to remember that their boss said that, and even if you said it jokingly. And that just never looks good when we're trying to explain why we did that. It should also hopefully not be in an email health information. Another reason, remember one reason for that is any kind of really sensitive information. Sometimes emails go stray. They do, you can send it to the wrong person. That happens. Being very, very careful with confidential information is a really important um, thing to do. Now, as a best practice for managers in general is being available for your employees. If they have questions about their performance, if they have questions in general, that you're available to them. I've never talked to a manager once that will tell me that they're unavailable to their, their employees. People always say, oh yes, I'm available, my door is always open. Well, is your door always open and you're on your phone the whole time when you're talking to them? You know, how does that come off to your employees? 
Um, I think people really need to put some information, put some thought into how they're coming across to their employees if they are approachable, if people do feel comfortable coming to you with concerns or questions. And if they don't, think about ways that you can change. And that might be looking at you know, employee managers that you work with in the past that you've gone to, how comfortable you felt with going to them and how you can possibly you know, try to use some of those skills for your own employees going forward. Now, we tell people frequently, you can't communicate too much with employees about the performance. But the one caveat is, let's say you have an employee who you've never once spoken to about their performance, then they make a complaint about you, and then all of a sudden, you tell them all the time what they're doing wrong. That's gonna definitely look like retaliation. That's why doing good documentation, doing good reviews should start hopefully from day one and not just after the fact where, oh gosh, that person says something bad about me. Well, I don't like them either. And that's something that we see very often. So if your church is really not doing a good job of, of communicating right now, mm -hmm. you decide to implement a new program, is it going to be an issue with that? Um, it can be some growing pains, but I think in uh, general. I happened to us about five years ago when you mm -hmm. get the Presbyterian involved and it became a real battle. Mm -hmm. And it was, you know, because the first time you said, well, we're trying to change things to make things hopefully better. Yeah, I think, I think definitely one thing I'll, I'll say is when you try to make a big change like that, you know, communicate with why you're doing it. You don't want to do a, a targeted change. And that's really, I think, what this is more geared towards, okay. where you're keeping things, you know, everybody else can do whatever they want, and this person is going to get a lot of performance reviews. I think we want to try to do things across the board, communicate if we're going to be making a fairly large change, and trying to be adding something positive in any kind of performance review that we're giving. Yes? You used the term manager several times. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming that assumes a structure with a paid person who's supervising other paid people. In the context of a church, where mm -hmm. does that have to be a paid person doing that? Can that be done by somebody designated by the congregation? It, it can be. Really, anyone in a position of authority to be kind of giving that kind of counseling. And assuming these, the consistency and all the other stuff yeah. is there. And it can also be with volunteers, and that's something that you'll see frequently, especially with, with churches, that you know you need to be doing counseling or you know, issues with the volunteers that have problems. And that can be another volunteer that's giving that counseling. But if, if that's the situation and you have policies in place, I would just want to make sure that your policies are being consistently applied. That if you're using maybe someone who's coming from outside, that they're still applying the same policies that you, that you for your personal church, have been using. Okay. Does that make sense? I'm asking because like, churches let's say below a certain size, you, mm -hmm. know, you, you have maybe multiple staff, but you're going to have multiple staff that are overseeing other staff. Uh -huh. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. and usually then that's the pastor that does that. There's self-interest in this question. Okay. <laughs> the, the pastor's doing that, and I think a lot of pastors do do that, but is there, there are there other ways to do that, that supervision documentation stuff legally where you still make sure all your I's are dotted and T's are crossed, or maybe it isn't the pastor doing 100% of it? There's no run requirement that one individual were to take over this kind of a role. In some places, that might be an HR. For some, you know, smaller churches, there might not be an HR person. That might be the, the office manager or just a, you know, a, different, a different pastor that might be controlling those kind of steps. There's no one person that should be doing it. But I would say if it's someone who's on the same really level of, of someone, if they're really considered equals under the employment, that really is not going to be as efficient, I would say, as being a, a counseling I'm thinking more like if it's like you have a, a personnel committee or you have mm -hmm. volunteers in the church that, that are overseeing certain aspects of the ministry, 
can one of them step into that role and do that? There's no reason legally why they can't. I would just say, again, we want to be consistent. And we also, you know, to the extent that this is someone who's not our employee that might be doing this, making sure that it's being as con kept confidential as possible. Now, again, be discreet. Yes. Um, are yearly evaluations adequate in your experience? Or I think they, they absolutely can be. I think for most employees, that's what they're going to be getting is a yearly written evaluation and maybe just some verbal you know, directions as we go along. If there's a big issue going on with this individual, I would recommend something more substantial than just the yearly. But you know, at the end of the day, what we say frequently is anything's better than nothing. Right. And doing a good yearly evaluation can be a wonderful tool to have. And again, just being discreet. So if there's someone, different people who might be involved in any kind of decisions, that we're keeping these kind of performance documentations, performance handlings, as quietly and as confidential as we can. Now this also goes for medical issues, medical documentation. Now one area that we see more and more frequently, actually right now in our firm, would be issues with infectious disease. And has anyone had a scenario like that in your church yet? Measles, for example. Things like that, we've seen that actually come up just recently with some church daycares. They had some um, church daycares that weren't requiring uh, measles vaccinations and some measles situations had arisen. And things like that, concerns about infectious diseases, someone being absent due to medical needs, harassment issues, on-the-job injuries, all of those things need to be bumped up to whoever the person that gets things bumped up to in your church is. Um, that might be, you know, it might be you or it might be someone above you, but those would be all the hot topics. Um, the things beyond that, and even things including that, we want to make sure that they don't spread more than we need them to spread. People are going to need to know if someone's going to be out due to medical needs, but they might not need to know why. You know, you, someone might not want you to, might, might not want their coworkers to know that they're getting chemotherapy, for example, and it's really their right to determine how much they're going to share. If you have an employee that's coming to you with that kind of a situation, the best thing you can do is ask them, what would you like me to tell your coworkers about why you're going to be out? And usually they will be very comfortable with having an explanation that you can provide. At the end of the day, being you know, discreet and being respectful of someone with medical, medical needs can go a long way to avoid hard feelings, number one, and potential lawsuits, number two. Um, this is just probably goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, never use language that could infer bias. You know, a big one that we see, I have it there at the bottom. Mr. Williams is so sweet and has such a grandfatherly demeanor. He didn't mean anything bad by that at all. But someone could very easily take that in a negative way. We even had a case once where it was a, it was a car dealership. It wasn't a church. And an individual would say, you know, everyone calls me Pops, you know, for, or Grandpa, feel free to call me Grandpa. And then he was the one who ultimately, when he lost his job through a layoff, came back and said, oh, they called me Grandpa. It was age discrimination. I was targeted. Now, the fact that he wanted people to call him Grandpa, sure, we can use that as a defense. And if it gets to a jury, the jury might be totally swayed by that. The church is going to pay $100,000 to get it to the jury. So that's why avoiding any of those kind of you know, communications that could be viewed as you know, improper is a really important thing to do. And some of these things can be extremely you know, innocuous. You know, something along the lines of asking someone, oh, you know, where are you from? Are you going on vacation? Again, nobody means anything at all by that, usually. But someone can 
take it the wrong way. And I've seen that in the kind of situation where that can be used against, against someone. So avoiding discussions about age, about gender, uh, about, about a lot of things, protected categories. Um, you know, religion obviously is different when we're with a the, with the church, but otherwise, you know, age, gender, national origin, race, I would say are gonna be the biggies. Um, supervisors, again, always, they set the standard, avoid things like, we need young, fresh faces around here, or even, you look tired. Um, people say that to everyone all the time, but one person can say that that was a code for age discrimination. That sounds crazy, but it happens a lot, which is why I'm at least mentioning it as being something that you could keep in mind as a potential red flag. And not all documentation is created equally. You know, if you had a file, what would you most want to have in there if you were getting sued by an employee? A note on a napkin about performance deficiencies, a note to file, an email to HR, an email to the employee, or a formal counseling evaluation signed by the employee. I can tell you what I would love in my file would be a couple formal counseling, maybe a one written warning, one you know last chance or suspension, and then finally a termination document referencing those first two counselings. That would be my ideal situation if I get a if I get a personnel file. But true story, that note on a napkin. We didn't just make that up. We had a case where the personnel file had a note on a napkin, and you know what? It was better than nothing. But definitely, if you don't currently have documentation in place. Look at this, think about maybe starting out what you could do if you want to have a form in place. Emails can be great. Even an email to yourself. Let's say that you're having a verbal discussion with somebody. That might be really all that warrants. It's a verbal discussion about, hey, we need you to do this, or hey, I've noticed this as being a problem. You don't need to send them a written, written warning about that, but you might want to capture it for yourself. Sending an email to yourself date stamps that conversation records it for yourself. And then, if the issue comes up again and you do want to do a written warning, you can capture the exact date. You know, As you know, on July 12th, we talked to you about this issue, it happened again, therefore, X, Y, Z. But having that documentation in place can be a really easy thing to start your documentation process. Yes? So the yearly evaluation should be signed by the employee? That's my, uh, yeah, that's my preference. And really the reason for that is just to prove that we, that this was given to him, that he knew about these situations, that it wasn't something that we created after the fact. And having their signature or their handwriting at all on there is how we can go about showing that. What's included in that then is only what you guys spoke about, otherwise it would not be, um, you know, conversation among the evaluators afterwards, or it's just the conversation you have with that person. We talked about this, this, and this, and you write that down, they sign that? Well, it, you can do different forms. What we see most often is a performance evaluation that, that you know, we've prepared, outlining different, you know, their topics and their performance in different areas, a little blurb about it. I mean, giving them a chance to respond if they'd like, and then just a sign off that has been presented to them. You don't need to sign off that they agree with it, but just getting them to sign off at all is, I think, what's important. And no, that might not capture everything in, in the universe that's gone on, but I think it's a good, a good start. It should capture all of the biggies. And I think I, I, think I have a slide specifically about that coming up. There's a little bit of a case study. Let's say you have a counseling memo for a Mrs. Jones, and it says, Ms. Jones is not reliable in managing the front desk operations. Now, what did Ms. Jones do? Is she not responsive? Did you receive negative feedback? Or do associates avoid going to Ms. Jones because of her, uh, because of her demeanor? 
what is the who, what, when, where, and why of the documentation? Now, the fact that you have documentation, just that, already puts you ahead of a lot of employers, I can promise you. But having that who, what, when, where, why is going to be really important to have good documentation. And also, you know, theoretically, if you're not firing Ms. Jones, it's because you see value in her. You want her to continue. You want her to improve. Telling her how to improve is how you can go about doing that. Um, good documentation tips, always be positive. Again, if you're not firing someone, you want them to improve. That's why you're giving them this warning so they can improve. Always include something positive about them in that, in that documentation. Be timely. Don't write somebody up for something they did two months ago. Definitely don't wait until after they've you know, had a worker's compensation injury and then write them up for something they did two months ago. You want it to be as timely as possible. How timely? It depends. Let's say something happened at your church today. You guys are all here. So realistically, you're not going to get to it until you get back. That might be reasonable. In another situation, addressing it immediately might be reasonable for your, for your situation. I would hope it would be within a week is my general goal for any kind of discipline. And again, that can vary, but that would be my, a good practice. Recapturing early communications is another good tip. Again, if you've spoken with someone verbally and it's continued, you can recapture that by listing out the dates or even you know, a general time frame if you don't know the exact dates. And that shows that you did have those discussions with them previously. In other words, it makes it harder for them to deny that you had these discussions or this is the first time that they're learning of this. Evaluations. Now, evaluations are something that I think a lot of churches um, do do, or at least strive to do. And the only real issue that I can see coming up with these is if you either try to sugarcoat it, everyone gets all fives, even if they don't really deserve all fives, but you just like giving all fives, um, that's a problem. They should be honest evaluations. And number two, if someone has done something either really good or really bad recently, that shouldn't necessarily color their entire year's evaluation. It should be a truthful look at their entire entire year. And you can discuss things that they've done you know, prior to you know, the last month or so. Now, switching gears now, a big issue for a lot of churches and really for a lot of employers is just simply not knowing what laws apply to you. Now, when I first did this slide, I had a little pyramid up here. And my business development manager took it off. I think we did not own the clip art. But um, that's what I want you to envision when you see this, kind of a, a pyramid of the hierarchy of laws. With the very bottom as applying to everyone is going to be the US Constitution and also the federal laws and regulations. That's going to be Title VII. That's going to be um, the ADA. Then above that would be state laws. And that varies drastically. Here in Colorado or you know, California, ah, it's very different than it's going to be in some other states. Where I am in Florida, quite frankly, it's pretty pro-employer, which is good for churches and other employees in, in Florida. Again, in California, it's a completely different area as far as what laws might apply. And then local laws. In different areas, you might have a church that's in one city and you're in a different city. There might be different regulations that are going to apply that you want to know about. And it might be something relatively minor. You know, again, again, I, I speak a lot about Florida because that's where I practice. Miami has a very specific regulation about people who have um, a domestic violence situation as far as how much leave they're entitled to. Broward County has a very specific ordinance about how you're going to pay employees who have jury duty. There are just different laws from different states and different local areas that you should at least try to understand the biggies for your area. And then there's the ministerial exemption. 
which is obviously a big one for churches. And I can tell you, extremely confusing for anyone who's looking through it and very much not a black letter issue. And well, the main part for, t for today for us dealing with, with church law goes back to the Zana Tabor case in 2012. Now this dealt with a teacher at a Lutheran school. She taught fourth grade. She taught mostly secular subjects, but she also did lead her students in prayer every day. She led chapel, I think once a week, and she also was considered a called teacher. And the school at issue had both. They had just regular contract teachers and they had individuals called called teachers that had training, as, training to be a minister. She in fact had spent a lot of years getting trained to become a minister. And she took a leave of absence from her job as a teacher due to narcolepsy. And when she came back, there was no position for her. And she sued the school. And they fought it out for several years before it made all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And the court held that she was a minister for her church. And therefore, the church could fire her, really, for any reason that they wanted to do so, that they didn't need to defend the ADA claim or, the dis or their retaliation claim. They didn't even need to get into the facts. She was a minister for the church, and they could terminate her at will. Um, and this is a, really a big issue, and I think people sometimes either can overlook it altogether or can go too broad and think, well, gosh, we're a church. Everyone's a minister. This is easy peasy. Um, and of course, it's, it's, it's not easy. Um, the term minister is not limited to pastors, but it's going to be determined by a case-by-case -case, uh, basis, which can be the most frustrating aspect of this. In addition to the, this aspect, which was you know, the retaliation, ADA, there's the wage and hour laws we talked about previously. And the issue for a lot of churches is, well, do I need to even worry about wage and hour laws? Or if I'm a church, do those apply to me? And the answer is they do apply. They might not apply to your ministers, but even that is really up for debate. There's not black letter law on that topic. You're not gonna be able to open up to the, the Fair Labor Standards Act and be able to say, oh gosh, no, this is a church, we're not gonna sue them. That doesn't exist. In different areas, in the Seventh Circuit, um, for example, there has been case law that says if you're truly you know, a minister, if you're engaged, if you're called to your job, if you're not really, if you're not working for, um, you know, if you're not in, really engaging for, for money, so to speak, but you're engaging for, for call for spiritual purposes, the FLSA wouldn't apply to you. But you're gonna be hanging your hat on some, you know, number one, um, case law is not gonna be good everywhere, and number two is going to vary from church to church, which can be scary and frustrating for a lot of churches. Now, whether or not someone is a minister is not gonna depend just upon their title, Again, going back to like the independent contractor issue, it would be super easy if we could just say, everyone's a minister, everyone's an independent contractor, but we can't. Um, in the Hosanna Tabor case, some of the big issues that they looked at as far as what we can hang our hats on would be how much education they had in, in church law and in, in spirituality versus someone who was just you know, maybe working for a church but didn't have any kind of specialized training. Also, do, we, do they hold themselves out to be a minister? Does the church consider them to be a minister, truly? Um, if you're calling your janitor a minister, that's not, gonna, that's not gonna cut the muster. Now, are they engaging in spiritual activities? You know, in that case, in Hosanna Tabor, you know, she was teaching science and math and, and reading and writing, but she also was doing chapel every week, you know, leading prayer every week. 
and that was enough in that situation to make someone a minister. There have been cases frequently, recently out of California, where there was another religious school where the church held the opposite. That person wasn't you know, religious enough, wasn't a minister enough to get this exemption. So it's a tricky area. It's something that we should definitely be aware of. But for any position, unless someone's really straight up in front of the church every week as a, as a pastor, um, whether or not someone's a minister is going to be up for debate. Now, ignoring complaints is also an issue that we're seeing a lot frequently leading to litigation. I think everyone's here is familiar with the, the Me Too um, discussion over the past year or two. And really a lot of that goes to complaints as what you know, people have brought up in the past. We want to be bringing up issues that may have happened to them in the past and how those are being addressed. Now, one of the reasons why it's important to address complaints, other than just that we want to be a good church who listens to our employees and tries to respect them, is that there's something called the Ferringer Defense, which is, again, United States Supreme Court law that held if you have a policy for how someone is to report you know, issues of discrimination or retaliation, if you have a policy in place, such as you know, bring all of your concerns to you know, the head pastor or to your office director or to, to someone, you know, explains how they do it, and that person doesn't take advantage of those steps, that you would be protected to some degree from a lawsuit. In other words, someone can't you know, be sitting on these concerns, sitting on these issues, quit their job and turn around and sue you for big bucks, and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I had no idea this was even an issue. You have a policy, they're required to take advantage of that and report it. The problem is, however, it's very easy for them to say, I did report it, and no one did anything about it. And certainly, it seems very logical, very reasonable that you would think, well, if someone brought complaints to me, I would do something about it, I would take it seriously. And that might be true if someone comes to you and sits down and says, I would like to make a formal complaint about so-and-so. And that does happen from time to time. But more often than not, it's kind of a, a casual thing. You know, oh gosh, I'm a little bit bothered by something someone said. Ah, it's no big deal. I'm just going to brush it off. And you might think, oh, okay, well, that, that could have been a problem, but it wasn't. But unfortunately, it doesn't need to be a formalized complaint. If you know about it, if you see it, if it's an off-the-record complaint, if the employee tells you, forget about it, never mind, I don't care, don't do anything with this, it's too bad, it's too late. You have a legal obligation to take those next steps, to investigate it, and, and to look into it. And just witnessing something can also be enough to trigger that. If you're walking by and you hear someone say something, you know, a racial slur or making an inappropriate joke, that's enough. No one needs to complain about it for you to know about it. And in fact, frequently, someone might see you, see that you knew that, and then if you don't react, then that's going to be enough to think, well, gosh, they're condoning this. This is fine. Did I see hand? So even if you don't witness it, but someone, it's just what they say hearsay, someone just mm -hmm. tells you something, and even if you don't know if it's true what the person told you, you're still obligated as the employer to act on it, investigate To investigate, yeah. You're not, if someone brings you a, a report, you're not obligated to go and, and fire them or take action. Right, right. But if you hear about it, even hearsay, I would say definitely do investigation. Right. We had a case once where the issue was someone slipped an anonymous note under the manager's door complaining about a certain, a certain manager. And the, man, and the individual who received the note will think, well, gosh, this is anonymous. I'm just going to throw the letter away. I'm not going to do anything about it. 
I can tell you right now, if you're receiving anonymous complaints about some of your employees, that should be a big red flag that there are issues to look into. And yes, they're not going to be able to go back and find out who exactly left that anonymous load. But that should be a trigger warning that I should look into this to some degree. Find out what's going on. Take the temperature, so to speak, of you know, my employees, my volunteers, and find out what the concerns are. Um, so investigations can vary. Certainly, they're going to depend if you have a, a large church with a lot of people who might possibly be witnesses, or a small church with just, you know, just a few employees that are even at issue. <laughs> but a big thing would definitely be documenting the complaint. You don't have to require someone, and you, you, you don't, even if someone doesn't put it in writing, you still need to investigate it, but I would encourage someone to try to put it in writing, asking them to put the, to put the complaint in writing so you can best look into it. Um, consider possible leaves of absence. You know, if someone had something truly upsetting, they might want a leave of absence for themselves. And that's certainly fine. I'd recommend, again, putting that in writing that they're the ones requesting it. An easier thing and a more common thing to do would be putting the person at issue, the person who's been accused of wrongful acts, on leave while we look into this. And that's uncomfortable. The person might be someone who you truthfully don't believe did the wrongful act. But if it's your policy and you're applying it consistently, I think most people understand why that's an important step to take. Documenting accounts of witnesses, again, ideally, this should be either in their own writing or it's something that they've written themselves and signed off on, or we could type it up and they could sign off on it. Something that kind of, again, has their handwriting to show that this is, in fact, a statement of a witness who saw something. Always who, what, when, where, why. I've gotten one line witness statements, better than nothing, um, but something that more detailed is always going to be more helpful. Um, get the alleged harasser story. This is actually a step that a lot of people leave out. They talk to everybody else except for the person who's been accused of the harassment. At the end of the day, it might not change what you're going to do, but at the very least, it's the fair thing to do, to ask that person their side of what exactly had happened. Um, taking action to prevent future conduct. Frequently, there is not going to be a need to actually terminate someone for inappropriate conduct. There might be. If there's an act of violence, for example, that's going to be the easiest scenario for me to say termination is appropriate. If it's one off-color comment, one off-color joke, not good, not okay, but termination, realistically, probably not. You know, doing something in writing, having them sign off again on our EEO policy, doing a, you know, a retraining on some kind of you know, <coughs> respect in the workplace, all of that can be an appropriate step. Suspension can definitely be an appropriate step. Termination sometimes, but doesn't need to be what you need to, what you have to do. What you do have to do, what your obligation is to ensure that this kind of harassing conduct does not occur again. That is your goal. And any way that you need to accomplish that can be appropriate. And then the last one is really important and really a way where people can go wrong, not communicating back to the person who made the complaint. You may have done everything right, except you failed to tell the person who made the complaint that you did take it seriously, that you did take steps to make sure that it wouldn't reoccur. And in the absence of that, in the absence of that kind of follow-up, that individual, I can promise you, is going to think that you did nothing. And we've had lawsuits where someone will say they did nothing to respond to my complaint. And that's not true, but they didn't know that you did, in fact, take it seriously. 
And I'm not telling you, you need to go to that individual and say, oh yeah, we talked to Joe and, and we gave him a you know, two-week suspension without pay and he cried and it was horrible. You don't need to do that. You shouldn't do that. But what you do need to do is say, we looked into this. Thank you so much for bringing this to my attention. It should not, take, it should not reoccur. We've taken steps to ensure that it will not reoccur. And if you have any future problems or future concerns, please bring them to me immediately. That makes the person know that you did take it seriously and that they do feel validated, they do feel heard. And someone who feels that way is gonna be much less likely to sue you. They still might, but they're much less likely to do so. Be careful about retaliation. This is a really easy thing to do. Let's say that you have an employee and you find out that they filed a complaint about you, about something that you said. It's, it, human nature can be hard to sit around the water cooler with that individual and you talk about your weekend. It can be easy to have hard feelings with things like that, which is why retaliation cases are so much easier to prove than any other cases in employment law because they are very easy for juries to understand that retaliation can happen which is why it's important for someone in one step above um, to be taking an increased look at what's going on, checking in on the situation, not just taking the position, well, gosh, if I haven't heard any complaints, everything must be fine, actively following up to ensure that things are in fact fine. And if you see these situations, all of a sudden the person who made a complaint is getting written up, um, the supervisor's complaining about them, the coworkers aren't sitting with them at lunch anymore. Those are issues that should be addressed. And if you see those, you should be kind of stepping in and trying to make sure those actions are not occurring. If someone was being supervised um, by someone they complained about, maybe any kind of employment issues in the future, you know, suspensions, terminations, anything like that, they should come through you rather than that individual upon making those decisions. That can really ensure that you're doing everything properly and that things aren't gonna at least give the appearance of a retaliatory motive. Not preparing for the worst. Now this is a little bit, is an issue that we didn't always include in a presentation like this, um, but it's something that we've seen a lot of questions on, unfortunately, and so I thought it was important to at least, at least address it with everyone today. And starting first of all with just in general workplace violence. <coughs> uh, where I work, it's a very, it's very different from a church. We work, I work in a in a in a building. We have to have um, cards to get into my floor to my my room. Churches want people to come in who've never been there before. They want people to come in that might be having the worst day of their lives, might be acting erratically. It's a situation where you're gonna be getting a lot of different individuals, strangers, that you welcome in, but can present different areas when it comes to safety and security. Where we see most often issues with workplace violence, number one, you know, criminal intent. Someone who's coming in there and saying, you know, give me all your money. Those kind of robbery, um, most often terrorism as, as well. Customer client, this would be, you know, your youth director who's committed acts of, of violence against members of your congregation. Or someone in your congregation who has, you know, attacked one of your, one of your employees. Co-workers, co-workers on co-workers, fights in the parking lot. Hopefully not something that you come across very often, but can be an issue. And then just impersonal. You know, you you're have a, a teacher whose ex-boyfriend is, is showing up on, on campus. Um, those issues are the case in, in Texas where it was someone who had a, a problem with um, their, their 
ex-wife's mother had come to the church and, and started a shooting spree. Those kind of background are most often where workplace violence issues can arise. Now, because this is a legal presentation, I want to talk a little bit about legal liability. Legal liability is not going to be your first thought whenever you come to a workplace violence situation, but it is something I at least want to explain what your own personal legal obligations are. And there is no law, no federal law at least, that requires you to have a workplace violence policy to prohibit workplace, to prohibit weapons in your workplace, um, or have a plan for dealing with an active shooter. Um, not even OSHA, which is Occupational Safety and Health Administration, requires that. Um, but you are expected to do exercise reasonable care to prevent foreseeable harm. And what OSHA has elaborated a bit on this, relatively unhelpfully for a lot of employers, is that any employer who can really see a potential for violence in the workplace, either through just risks, threats that they've received, acts of violence, just can perceive a potential for workplace violence, should, best practice, have a workplace violence prevention program. So everyone can see a potential for workplace violence. Therefore, having some kind of workplace violence protection program, you know, a document and you know, examination of what we can do to try to prevent workplace violence is a good practice. Now, OSHA has some tips on the website for different size employers for things you can consider implementing. There are also plenty of groups across the country that specialize in this, especially, unfortunately, recently. Um, negligent hiring, negligent supervision, and neg negligent retention are the big torts that we see when it comes to, um, yes? I, guess I want to go back just real quickly sure. if I can. I'm just curious, to, so, so we did have a, a situation where we had an employee who had a restraining order against the spouse. Mm -hmm. So to make people aware, particularly our welcome center, we, had to, we gave them a picture of what he looked like. Good. Now, I mean, that doesn't violate any of her, of keeping her stuff private, you know? No, I think that's, it, safety trumps almost everything else okay. in employment law. I will say in that kind of a situation, if you have someone with, who brings that to concern, concerns to you, usually sitting down with them and asking them, you know, what they would like to do, what they would like to implement, I think that's important. The other situations we've seen, it would be someone, maybe they want to change their work hours, they want to have an escort to and from their car, all of these things are very common, but giving the picture to someone at the front desk, that is by far the most common and most effective thing that we've seen, and I think it definitely makes sense in that situation to do that. You don't have to give someone all the details as far as what right, they've done, right. but to say, hey, look, and this is, there's some issues going on. If you see this person, you know, alert us, alert security. Okay. Since you're on the subject of safety, mm -hmm. uh, this uh -huh. is a bit off the topic, sure. but of course with all of the church violence that's taken place from the outside, Mm -hmm. as people coming in and shooting up the place. Mm -hmm. If someone comes in and you zap them with uh, pepper spray, say, uh -huh. you going to get in trouble for that? <laughs> I, guess it, I guess it depends. That's the, that's the lawyer answer. If someone's mm -hmm. coming in with intent to do harm, if they have a gun, if they're acting you know, mm -hmm. violently, then I would say knock yourself out, use the pepper spray, I think any, any, anyone would. Um, so what if someone in the congregation is armed and turns around and shoots them? Well, in most cases, they'd be held as a hero. If they're wrong and that person didn't have a gun, they had a, they had a hairspray, they had a bottle of hairspray or something like that, they'd be probably arrested for murder. So that's the risk. But I mean, the, that's the, the people risk. frankly have a gun and it's, you know, like 
as in mm -hmm. what has happened. Oh, if some if someone's actively shooting, yes. then that's there's safety defense. There's the self defense for for any kind of any kind of active um, shooting someone yeah, for in, in, across any kind of criminal law. Whack them over the head with a baseball bat. Self defense. Yeah, self-defense. If someone's literally acting in self-defense of themselves and others, that's going to be a bar for any kind of criminal conviction in any that's state. That's the old joke about if somebody's trying to get into your house mm -hmm. and you shoot them, you better make sure they're across the threshold. Uh huh. I think if someone's having, opposing a threat to harm, shooting them, stopping them in any way, and we're actually going to be talking about specifically workplace, that kind of a I mean, we've certain measures. We always lock all but mm -hmm. one door. Now we're locking when the service starts, all the doors. Keeping someone by the door in case someone wants to come in late. You know. And I have a bunch of slides on this exact topic that I think oh, I think might be helpful. But in, in, in the short answer is, if you're acting in self-defense, that is a bar for any kind of a criminal conviction. Mm -hmm. conviction. So, and absolutely, in, in most situations, that's really the ideal scenario of how these workplace violences stop, is if someone is available to stop them. Because one thing that I had seen fairly recently is work mass shootings tend to be over within two minutes, which means that if the police take on average six minutes to get there, if someone can stop them, they should stop them, in my opinion. Particularly in an urban church, that is. But we have, we, have we have several slides on that kind of scenario, the worst, the worst possible outcome for, for churches. But one thing that I wanted to stress about this slide, the negligent hiring, supervision, and retention, because what we see a lot of cases with churches would be inappropriate conduct with children, either volunteers or church members who, you know, youth directors, for example, inappropriate behavior um, with children specifically. And where you can get into legal liability would be negligent hiring, supervision, or retention. And those issues can best be demonstrated by a case, um, actually back, I think in the early 90s, out of Tallahassee. There was a, a college student, her father purchased a couch for her apartment. There was a delivery company that came and delivered the couch. And these individuals came in through no other reason other than they worked for the delivery company. That's why she opened up her door and allowed them in. One of those individuals came back later that day and attacked, attacked the girl in a, a very brutal attack. And the family did sue the delivery company. And in doing so, they learned that this individual had a huge list of extremely violent offenses. That if they had done any criminal background check on this individual, any reasonable person would not have hired them and definitely not to be entering into their customers' homes. Not only that, but currently he'd gotten into multiple fights with other coworkers. He had track marks on his arms demonstrating you know, use of you know, <coughs> drug use. Exactly, something that if anyone had been doing any reasonable hiring, supervision, or retention, they would not have employed this person. So when you hear those tips, those are things to think about. You know, am I doing a background check? That would be a really good practice to take. Am I seeing things that make me feel uneasy with individual, this individual? Am I getting complaints? If I am getting complaints, am I taking reasonable care to investigate those? Those are best practices to try to avoid one of those um, tort claims when it's one of our employees. Yes? Are you going to cover uh, you had an employee that was accused of something and it went to the courts, and now you have another 
entity asking mm -hmm. you for information about that employee? I don't cover that. Um, I could cover that. That's a pretty, that's a tough, that's a tough topic. Um, and that actually is going to depend a little bit on, on state law. And also, actually, I'm not sure if your, your presbytery has overall guidance for that as well. In Florida, for example, if you answer truthfully to any question that you receive from a prospective employer, not, you know, subjectively, not that guy was a real jerk, mm -hmm. but, you know, yes, this person was terminated on such and such date for such and such reason. If it's a truthful answer, you're barred from, from liability. Um, in some cases, there's been situations where people have sued a church for not revealing those situations, that someone's really a threat, we're passing the buck, and now they're in a situation where they could be putting others at harm. So for us across the board, my best tip is do what, do what, is, what feels right. If someone's really a threat, I'd be more comfortable with you telling them that and defending you for a um, defamation case than it would be for you holding that in and defending you for a case where someone was you know, truly victimized. I mean, the classic thing, of course, is the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. and, and, okay, so priest is up to no good and so you just transfer it somewhere else. Exactly. So that's and that, a huge offense. That's a huge offense. Yeah, and that's a huge problem. Not just, not just for for liability reasons, not just for the press, but just for you know what you what you what you can live with. Exactly. And worse, again, for the, for the worst case scenarios, we've touched a little bit. I'm going to be getting to the the church shootings. And the one thing that I want to stress is workplace shootings are still very, very rare. The odds that any of us are going to be dealing with a, a shooting in our church is extremely unlikely. But if you are anything like me, that doesn't mean that you don't worry about it. And I'm willing to bet when you hear the news and you see what's happened you know, frequently. Um, I just saw yesterday, it was uh, the four-year anniversary of the Charleston shooting. Um, I'm from Pittsburgh, and just last year there was a shooting at the, the Jewish synagogue. It seems like they happen more and more often. And I think that's one of the reasons why churches are very unique in nature. Again, it's a situation where there's not, you know, you, you want strangers to come in. You might not notice if someone's coming in acting erratically. And so what you can do to try to avoid these scenarios, or at least try to feel as though you're doing the best that you can. Number one, communication. Communication, I think, is key. There might be individuals from your church that you really feel like you can reach out to, that you can enlist. You know, maybe you have a former Navy SEAL in your congregation. Maybe you have a former police officer. Those are individuals where, by all means, if you feel comfortable reaching out to them and asking, hey, could we, you know, could we count on you if we, if we need help with security? Would you feel comfortable if, I, you know, if you always sat over here by the nursery during church, or if you sat here in the back of the church during church? That's a reasonable step to take, and I'm willing to bet a lot of your congregants would be more than willing to help on that. Does everyone know where the exits are? Do you have an AED, and if they are, where are they kept? You know, frequently people come in, they go through the same exit, um, and they might not realize that there might be an exit that might be closer to them, or smaller exits may make sense. You know, every so often you hear about you know, a situation where there's a fire, and everyone rushes one exit, even though there are others available. Having that familiarity, knowing which way to go, can make a big difference when you might really have minutes or seconds to react. And what would your congregants do if they noticed someone acting strangely? Would people know, hey, I can go talk to this usher, I can go talk to this, this, um, this pastor, this member of the congregation who I trust? Having those people in place throughout that you know you feel comfortable going to can help. We had a situation that was relatively strange, but someone noticed there was a new member of a church sitting there playing with a knife 
during during church, and they said something, and they someone else went over and felt comfortable and addressed it with them, and it was really a non-issue. I guess he, he liked to whittle or something along those lines. Might be completely normal in, in some areas of the country and, and less normal in others, but it was an, it ended up being a non-issue. But the important thing is that people felt comfortable bringing it up, addressing it, and it was in fact addressed. So communication, having making sure that your congregants feel like they can communicate is one of the most important things you can do. Security is probably the best thing that you can do. Hiring off-duty police officers for mass, this is huge. This makes people feel safe. This makes you be less of a likely target because people are going to be less likely to choose a church that's clearly protected. Installing security cameras, patrols in the parking lots, and I think this is either the second or the third time I mentioned this, background checks for your employees and for your volunteers. Definitely for anyone who's working with children. And not just background checks where you run them and don't look at them, because some people run them and don't look at them. Run them and look at them, and if you have red flags with violent behavior, definitely you don't want them around your, anyone working with children. Have a plan in place. Who's gonna call 911? Hopefully someone who can keep their head relatively calm, not someone who's gonna be there and just you know cry. Of course, none of us know what we would do in that situation. But you want someone who can tell them, you know, there's there's two people or there's one person and they're wearing this and they're dressed, you know, they're they're they they went that way. So something along those lines, things that could be relatively helpful if we're wanting for the police to respond, you know, immediately. Who could assist those with special needs? Um, who might realistically engage a, a physical threat. Now, when I talk about this topic, there's wide differences in how people view concealed carry permits. Some people think that anyone who has a gun is potentially a threat. Some people think the exact opposite, that they feel comfortable with their gun. I can tell you for me personally, I'm, I'm not a gun person. I, I, don't, I, I would not be the one engaging the physical threat. But if my husband was there, he would be, because he realistically would be armed. So I can see both sides of that. There was a case really not far from here in Colorado Springs back in 2007 where there was a shooting in a church. I think two or three people were killed. The assailant got away. Everyone was on high alert in the area. The assailant went to another church and started shooting in the parking lot. That church was on high alert. They had a member of the congregation who was an off-duty police officer who had her gun and she pulled it out and she stopped and she shot him. And that did stop the shooting. So there might be times when you might want to have someone in your congregation who you feel comfortable assisting in, in that way. And there, you might feel the exact opposite. You might not want any guns in your church property. And I can't tell you what is right or right, it's, right, it's not right. That might depend on where you are in the country or just how your church is in general. And check your insurance policy. Yes. Um, and considering investing in a third party security assessment. More and more churches, I think, are doing this, and they can depend based on how much it's going to cost to get that assessment. But these are people who are specially trained in this area who can come in and tell you what your weaknesses are, what you can do that might help you overall as, as, as you know, threat assessments. I have one more comment mm -hmm. on that. Uh -huh. Just because we've done a lot of this of late, and your local police department will also, and fire department will walk through your building at no charge and yeah. also help you put a plan in place. Yeah, and, they can, there's, and I think that's a really, right now, there's a huge interest in trying to get that done. I actually had seen one, one person who made a suggestion once, we can, you know, police officers want to do trainings in different locations, and with all the church shootings, unfortunately, offering your church as a place where they can do a practice can really be beneficial because people are in there and doing that kind of practice scenario, and it can help you, and it can help them. 
And just in general for having a plan in place, but I always think too is when you get on an airplane, they tell you, here are your exits. You know, this is your flight, this is your, your vest, it's gonna come down. The odds are that you're never gonna need to know any of that. But if something were to happen, having knowing where your exits are, that just in of itself can help save your life. Yes? Um, considering the investing in a third party assessment, if you mm -hmm. get that assessment and don't implement the suggestions that they have, are you now liable for that? It depends. I mean, any, any church is going to, anyone can tell you your best practice for super safety is going to have everyone go through, you know, security checkpoints and, and, um, and what are the, the metal detectors, exactly. Um, and that might just not be feasible, number one, economically, right. or number two, just for the morale of your church. So I think there's gonna be a balancing, a balancing test. But if there's something relatively simple that you don't do, could it possibly be used against you if there's a church shooting? I, I can't say that it can't be, because it, it potentially could be. Um, but I think the benefits of getting that done and taking reasonable steps to re avoid these scenarios probably would outweigh the risk that you don't do something that ultimately could have, could have saved lives. Thanks. Um, one thing that I really like is having a worst case scenario committee. This is a very easy thing to do. This could be with your employees. This could be with some members of your congregants, again, who you feel you, you, can, really, you can really trust. And you can think about other things. You know, what's, what's the worst scenario that could happen to us? You know, I'm in Florida. There could be a hurricane. There could be situations that arise. It could be a fire. You know, what are some worst case scenarios that can happen and how would we respond? And just going about and thinking about that, taking those steps of planning out what you could do can be a really helpful way to avoid those things ever actually occurring. Um, have safety drills, you know, ushers, secure the building. You can do those after church every so often so people can get a sense of what they would do. Just like, you know, our children in, in school, they have fire drills. Um, something similar in church, I think people would understand the need and would probably appreciate the, the gestures. Conduct trainings, CPR trainings can be a very helpful thing to do. There's something called Stop the Bleed. Has anyone heard of this? If it's, a, if it's more of a recent um, training, again, because in these situations where there's going to be a, a shooting, one of the biggest risks is, is blood loss. And so beyond CPR, being able to stop the blood loss, provide tourniquets, have that kind of training can really be the most helpful in those kind of really violent situations. Bystander trainings as well. That's for examples of, you know, you see something strange, you're not quite sure how to handle it, how to approach someone who's acting, acting erratically. Bystander training can help you handle those kind of scenarios. A lot of these, these, um, these conductor trainings can be offered completely for free. Uh, where I am, we have a crisis center <coughs> nearby. They offer bystander training every month for free. Our local police, office, police officers offer a, a workplace, um, a shooting training, I think every, every quarter or so, completely for free. This might be something where you send people to attend it, or you can reach out to these organizations and have them come to your church and train anyone who wants to, tends to train. That can be a simple thing to do that can really go a long way to at least making yourself feel as though you're doing the best that you can. Having first aid, including AEDs, are definitely a good practice for any church and really for any, any you know, company out there. And then strictly following your own safety guidelines. You know, who's gonna be doing the church drop-offs? Um, who's allowed to transport children and in what vehicles? Just last week, I had a church client that put someone on a one-month suspension for renting a, a, a van that was too large. It was against their guidelines for transporting children because they were very strict that no, we only allow certain vehicles to transport children 
and if they violated it, it was going to be a one-month suspension. Who is allowed to have unsupervised access to children? This seems like it's easy in place, but is it actually being followed? Are parents allowed to, to linger in classes? If they are, maybe do you want to do a background check on them? I mean, it's something that you can easily do to make sure that all of your, your you know, I's are dotted and T's are crossed and have methods of, math of communication in place. I can tell you right now, they tell you in a, in a shooting, the best thing to do is to flee. So get as far away from a scenario as you can. If you have parents who have their children in a nursery on your, on your property during a mass, where do you think they're all gonna be going to? To the nursery. Having methods of communication in place, especially with anyone who's gonna be offsite with a nursery, is gonna be extremely important. So they know what's going on, so they can lock the doors, so they can call 911, so they can have two people get down. They can be walkie-talkies. There's now these apps on your iPhone where you can talk to someone like walkie-talkie. Again, very simple to do, maybe free to download, and can be very helpful in a crisis scenario. And then knowing how to respond to complaints to employees or church members, even if they make you feel uncomfortable. It's much more likely you're going to have the scenario where you have someone making inappropriate conduct than you're going to have somebody who's going in there in actually a, a really violent situation. Addressing those kind of complaints, if someone sees something, says something, following up and, and, and really doing your due diligence for any kind of complaints or uncomfortable scenarios can be a really best practice to take. Now, this topic is almost the opposite of workplace violence. Workplace violence is extremely terrifying and uh, the worst case scenarios are extremely unlikely to happen. Toxic work environments, on the other hand, are very common. Everyone here, I'm willing to bet, has worked with somebody who was a bully, someone who was a jerk, someone who made going to work really uncomfortable. And those scenarios are much more likely to lead you into hot water for employment law than the workplace violence is going to be. Now, workplace violence, again, it's just it's, it's horrific to the part where we need to, to think about it and plan for it. But this is something that people more often than not ignore, despite the fact that it's definitely an area that you should be focusing on. And these are individuals who maybe they're performing fine, they're doing their job, they're doing the work, but they're just jerks, they're not nice, they're, they're Debbie Downers in some areas, or they're just kind of mean. And how do you address that? I think a lot of people ignore it. They don't really know exactly how to phrase, you know, you're being a jerk, and so maybe they don't. Um, one good tip would be in any job description, and hopefully job descriptions are, are good and people are using those, you include the fact that an employee must contribute to a workplace of keywords dignity and respect. And if an employee is not contributing to the dignity and respect of a workplace, that may be a terminable offense. So focusing on buzzwords, you know, disrespectful interactions with others, uh, making an unacceptable, uncomfortable work environment, those are things definitely that you can discipline someone for, terminate someone for. And these things, these kind of employees that are just toxic, um, bad employees, they can lead to higher turnover, they can learn to someone just feeling unappreciated. And those are people where even if you've done everything right on most respects, they don't ultimately come and go seek, in a, seek a lawyer who's gonna tell you, he's gonna ask them how they were paid, he's gonna ask them about questions about your policies, and you might all of a sudden get a demand letter or a lawsuit that you otherwise would never have if these kind of just random toxic employees had been dealt with. Now, uh, this is a, a relatively common scenario what we see with this kind of toxic 
environment. Well, let's say you have a, a director or, or anyone who's in, who runs an extremely deficient partner, department. Um, she works hard, she comes in under budget, and she gets the job done. Also, she also has a very bad temper, and she can get ugly when she's under a lot of stress. Um, she can swear at her employees, she can throw things down, she can slam the door, she chews employees out, and sometimes in front of other people. Um, she does this to everyone, though. She doesn't single anyone out, in other words. She's, um, no one is safe when she's stressed out. Anyone think this is illegal? <laughs> yeah. It might not be illegal, no. If she's, if she's an, e an equal opportunity meanie, it might not be illegal. Is it a problem? Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a big problem, and I can tell you it's situations where if your best defense is this person's mean to everyone, they weren't tricking on this person because of their their race. This is they're just mean to everyone. A jerk is gonna hate you. They're not gonna want you to not gonna want to help the help the company help the church. If you were allowing this kind of behavior to go on, they're going to want to punish you for allowing this. The best practice is to discipline or terminate the mean boss, even if they're otherwise a great employee. Um, we had this, well, not, not quite this scenario, but in, in my own law firm, we had an attorney who was a wonderful attorney, excellent at litigation. And she would tell us on herself that when she was a managing attorney, she wasn't very good. You know, she, was, she was one of those individuals you see in baseball sometimes where they don't understand if something doesn't come naturally to somebody else, so didn't have time to help other attorneys or anything along those lines. Wonderful at one aspect of the job does not necessarily translate to being a good manager. And so when you have these scenarios, you definitely want to be getting involved, maybe you know, letting someone go, maybe moving those kind of responsibilities away from them. And unfortunately, you also want to look at yourself and wonder, how do my employees see me? Could I be considered the mean one or could I be considered playing favorites? Um, and this is an interesting one. They did a, a survey of all the reasons why someone would leave their job for all sorts of different scenarios. And the number one reason when people would leave their jobs is if they thought that it was unfair in the workplace or that the boss was playing favorites with other individuals. And frequently, you might not realize that you're doing this. But the issue is, it depends on what the employee themselves perceives. And it can be that if it's perceived as discrimination if you come in there and you say good morning to Sally, but not to Joe. And that might just be that Sally's there smiling and Joe's in his office working. Um, and it seems like a strange thing, but those issues of potential favoritism are something that you should look to yourself and see possible issues that could be addressed. Um, do you have relationships with employees away from work? Do you more often talk to some employees than, than others? Do you eat lunch with some employees you know, every day? The odds are probably yes for some of these things. And they might not be issues, but I think it's important to look at how things might seem to someone else. Um, if, you know, if you always eat lunch with certain individuals, maybe you wanna shake it up, take everyone out to lunch occasionally, take out everyone on their birthday to lunch with the one-on-one -on -one with you, things like that. It might sound, you know, silly that that's going to be a, a big issue that you really want to focus on. But again, things like that, people feeling like they're being treated fairly can go a long way to you never getting a demand letter, to you never getting sued. Because people who are happy and feel appreciated are much less likely to quit and much less likely to seek an attorney as well. Applying rules consistently, this is a, a, a huge one across the board, Consist inconsistently kills with um, 
with employment law. So if you're going to not discipline someone for something, um, what did you do for someone else in a similar situation? Those are just big things to ask yourself in any kind of scenario. And our final topic is misunderstanding that what at will means when it comes to terminations. Now, as an employment attorney, there is no question or no misconception that I've gotten more than this one, which is, well, my employee is at will. I don't have to give them a reason. I can let them go for any reason whatsoever, and they can't sue me. Not true. At will means you can let someone go for any reason at all, good reason, bad reason, no reason, as long as it's not a discriminatory reason. And that is the big caveat. So like, for example, my boss could fire me from wearing a blue shirt. They could say, I don't want you to wear a blue shirt, I'm gonna let you go. Now on its face, that's not a good reason, but it's, it's, it's fine. However, what if they, you know, what if someone else in my office wore a blue shirt and didn't get fired? Then I'm gonna say, well, you didn't fire them because of, because, because of something, because of, because of my race or my, or my gender or something along those lines. And that puts you in the position of having to explain why you made the decision, why it makes sense, and having a position to really defend your actions. So at will does not make you bulletproof. In fact, in a lot of ways, at will is very misconstrued and doesn't really get you very far at all. Now the flip side to at will is if you have an employee who has a contract, like we, I think we mentioned at the beginning of this. If you have an employee who has a contract that can only be terminated for certain reasons, that individual is not at will. Does that make sense? Or I can clarify that if, if needed. Okay. Now there are many laws that limit an employer's ability to terminate um, at, you know, at will. Title VII, you know, this is for the, the race and gender discrimination, age discrimination in the Employment Act, Americans with Disabilities Act, Family and Medical Leave Act. This applies if you have 50 or more employees working within a 75 mile radius of you. So for smaller churches that would, that would not apply, for larger ones it will. The Employee Polygraph Protection Act. I have never had a case yet on this particular law, but for anyone who is currently forcing your employees to take polygraph tests, that's illegal. Um, hopefully no one was doing that, but if you were, good, good tip for today. Um, occupational safety. When you, when you uh, say 50 employees, mm -hmm. do you mean 50 on a payroll run or 50 FTEs, full-time employees? Um, it's considered 50 full-time employees, but that can be like if you have, you know, 100 part-time employees, that can sometimes qualify. Um, Occupational Safety and Health Act and common law, sometimes there's a common law grounds under certain states as well, and state and local laws against discrimination. In other words, these are all different ways where someone can, can sue you for um, in a kind of a termination situation. Um, and these are going to be red flags. If you have a termination scenario, these will be things that will treat the interest of a, a plaintiff's attorney or someone who's being hired to, to defend you. A reduction of force of one. This always looks a little bit strange when you're, you know, you're laying a bunch of people off, but it just happens to be just you. Just you are getting terminated. Um, that doesn't look so much as a reduction of force as it does look like a, a termination that you're trying to sugarcoat. Or alternatively, when you really are, let's say you're, you're outsourcing your bookkeeping, everyone in your bookkeeping department is getting laid off. However, everyone except one person will have the ability to get a new job within the church. That's also going to be the same line. It's going to be a red flag. Um, termination for poor performance without an analysis of similar treatment. Let's say Susie shows up, you know, five minutes late to work one day and we fire her. 
um, but somebody else is late to work all the time and we don't fire them, that's gonna look suspicious. You know, certainly being late might be against your policy, but what do you do in similar situations? And if you're treating someone differently, you're really gonna wanna have an explanation for why. Use of non-objective criteria. This I get all the time. You know, why did you let someone go? They just weren't working out. They weren't a good fit. Um, that can make total sense to a lot of people, but that's not an easy thing to go in front of a jury and say, you know, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, they just weren't working out. That's a hard, harder argument to make than if I can say, you know, this person complained about that, this, you know, this parishioner was, was angry about how they were treated, you know, this person showed up late to work five days in a row. All of those things are much easier to explain rather than something completely objective. Um, job not available when you turn from leave. Now, this is definitely if you have FMLA scenarios or even if you have, you know, an ADA situation, which is 15 or more employees. Um, and that can also be different for, for state law. If you have anyone who's leaving for a medical leave and when they come back, their job's not available, that could definitely be a red flag. Now, if you are really going to let go of the position anyway, that's absolutely a defense. But hopefully you have that documented as far as why that decision was made. Otherwise, at the very least, it's going to be a red flag. Absenteeism and tardiness, completely reasonable reason to let someone go. Where the red flag comes in is, let's say someone is frequently absent from work and you know, the, the, a lower level individual lets them go. They might bring a lawsuit that says, well, they knew that I was getting you know, treatment for my, you know, a, a certain kind of uh, medical condition a condition that normally would have triggered a right to a, a protected leave and that was never bumped up. So that's why it's important to have someone who knows the laws reviewing those kind of terminations when it's involving an absenteeism to ensure that it's not a situation that would actually might be a protected medical leave of absence. Performance evaluations and raises, as we have discussed, if your performance evaluations are across the board great, they're getting raises every year and you're letting someone go for performance, that's a red flag. I'm gonna to wanna to know why that happened. And hopefully it didn't happen immediately after that someone said that they were pregnant, for example. Because that's gonna be a big red flag. Protected categories, protected activity. Everyone is protected for some reason or another. It's, um, it's, it's gender, it's, it's race, it's your age, it's um, a disability. Everyone is gonna fall under protected categories. Some people are gonna be more protected than others. If someone, you know, again, just had a, um, a fall at work, workers' compensation law, they're going to be a little bit of a heightened protection category because something just happened. Nothing will make somebody bulletproof. You can always go ahead and, and terminate if that's what you want to do. But you should at least be aware of the risks that involve, are involved when you make those decisions. Protected activity, these means complaints. If someone's come to you and complained that they're being sexually harassed at work and you fire them the next day, that's gonna look like suspicious timing. People ask me sometimes what is long enough time to wait, and there is, again, no black letter law. Generally, after three months of an incident, it's less likely to raise suspicions. But that is not gonna be a, an end-all scenario. That's what we see most often as being a reasonable amount of time. Now, a good uh, takeaway as far as things to consider whenever there's a termination or a discipline in place, for you know, performance violation, um, a policy violation, the clean doctrine, considering the facts behind what happened, learning what the witnesses have to say, 
evaluating what has been done in the past, which is the biggest step that people tend to forget about, analyzing your risk. Again, every termination has risk. You can be letting someone go within their 90 days for truly horrible behavior, and they still might see you. Every termination has some degree of risk, but there's gonna be different degrees that we're willing to, to accept. And narrow down potential options and decide. One thing that I wanted to, to float that I, I haven't mentioned yet is uh, some, some churches and some companies in general offer something called a separation agreement or a severance agreement to someone leaving. This can be something you do not just to recognize a really great employee who you really like, but if you're worried someone's going to sue you and you throw a couple thousand dollars at them and in exchange they waive their rights, that can be a completely justifiable business expense to do. So that's something people don't always consider doing, but I wanted to float it as something that you might want to consider. If you have a truly sticky situation with an employee that you're concerned about risk, if they sign away their rights, if they do that in exchange for an agreement, you're good, you're safe. Question. Mm -hmm. In the context of the culture in which we live, mm -hmm. as a church, you have an employee that determines to live with their boyfriend, girlfriend. Mm -hmm. Can you say, uh, sorry, you're no longer? Yeah, it, for, for that, um, for a lot of companies, the answer would be no. For churches, there's two different things to consider. One is if they would be a minister, for example, for going back to the minister exemption, the answer would be yes, absolutely. If someone, you know, for example, if it's an unwed mother and you don't want that in your church, absolutely you have the right to determine if someone is going to be um, allowed to continue as your church as a minister. If it's someone who's not really in a ministerial position, then I guess the answer would be it depends on what you do in your actual, if your normal church. If you have a policy that all everybody in your church has to be Presbyterian and has to follow your, your policies and your procedures and your, your tenets, then I would say yes, you can say, let's let that person go. If you don't really have that policy, if you don't really care what people are, are, are doing, if people can be, you know, Catholic or Jewish or Muslim as long as they're, you know, doing their basic you know, work at the church, then that might be a trickier scenario to answer yes so or definitely. Policy would be a critical aspect of that whole A policy that you're actually following. Would be the would be the big yeah <laughs> would, would would be the big takeaway yes I mean because I mean entirely possible that it's very important that everyone in your church from someone who empties out the trash to someone who's you know your minister follows your tenets and if that's the case then you can make that kind of a determination but if it's not what you've done in the past if that's not really your policy that you followed through on then that's going to be more of a red flag scenario where you might be able to defend it but it might be more of a fight than it otherwise would be. The longer you let it go on. Yes, and, it, and again, it depends on their position. If, you're, if you have an argument that they're a minister for your church, that puts you in the best position. Yeah, taking out of the minister classification. Okay, all right. Then I would say it depends on how you've done in the past, your policies, and maybe why this is triggered. And I can say, I tell you right now, one red flag would be is if you've known this has been an issue and it hasn't been a concern to you until this employee you know, made a complaint about how they were paid or something along those lines. Then it's going to look less like you're doing it for religious purposes and more like retaliation. So those would be all the, and I, this is, um, again, I think I've said this several times, but the, it depends. Answer is the most common answer you're going to get from any attorney. Uh, it, it depends on the scenarios. So how much religion can you bring in on your, if you're church only, mm -hmm. on your um, interviewing? Well, can you ask uh, a person if they go to church or if they are affiliated with a church or, or if they believe or something like that? Well, if it's important for that position, if it's important for well, your position for any of your positions, the, right. 
we we have very small church. We only you know we don't have that many employees. Mm -hmm. So if you were replacing an administrator, uh huh, can uh, you ask them those questions? If it's a requirement and it's an expectation that everyone in that role has the same beliefs as your church, then yes, you can ask those questions. You can go down those scenarios with them. Okay, so. Let's say you had, let's say you were a predominantly white church, mm -hmm. and you had, you were replacing an administrator, mm -hmm. and one was, one uh, interviewee was uh, a minority, mm -hmm. and another wasn't, but the other belonged to another Presbyterian church, uh -huh. and they had equal qualifications, but uh -huh. you chose the one that belonged to the other Presbyterian church because that's mm -hmm. what they did. You got any problem there? There's always a risk. I can never tell you that there's not any, any risk, but I can say in that scenario, if that was why you made that determination, and that's, to me, that seems reasonable, that would say that you have a good defense in that scenario. If, however, you've done the opposite in other hiring situations, then I would say it's more of a, more of a red flag. But if it's really your preference that you want someone who has, he goes to the Presbyterian Church, and that's what you do across the board, that's a very good defense. Yes. Per, you know, we probably wouldn't want a Muslim in that position uh -huh. uh, because it's a very small church and they deal mm -hmm. with very close, you know. Uh -huh. That doesn't mean we're Again, a lot, of, all of these laws are very different. If I was talking to a group that wasn't a church versus versus a church, mm -hmm. because if it if it was not a church, the same the and same problem, yeah, the same problems. But for a church, and it really is your requirement that they have those same beliefs, then I think that that's a good a good defense. Now, all of these again, I'm saying the word defense. It's not going to be a complete bar to someone bringing a claim, but if you can be able to show that this is what we do, this is why it's important to us, and that's so completely defensible. Policies, very important to have policies. And the other thing is, um, yeah, uh, my train of thought there. But um, if if a person belongs to your church, mm -hmm. we usually would, would not want them to be in that administrative position because okay. they deal with things of confidentiality about the other members of the church. And again, I would say that's com that's completely reasonable to have. That would not be a legal issue. And we're just we're only have a couple of minutes left. I just want to run through quick slides, but I'm welcome to stay after if anyone has questions. I don't want. I just don't want to keep anyone. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the easiest ways I have my business cards in the back. If you could shoot me an email, that I can just forward you the slides or any oh, other information that, that you have. Um, neat doctrine, notice, explanation, assistance, time to improve. Someone who has performance problems, you want to do all of this. You want them to not, a termination should not come as a surprise to anyone. Um, they want to have explanation of what they're doing wrong, ability to improve, and hopefully assistance if they can to, to make those kind of improvements. Termination best practices, don't sugarcoat it. Don't tell them that you're downsizing or eliminating the position if it's not true. Worst case scenario, you tell someone they're eliminating their position, that individual is checking the job ads next week and sees their position up for, up for, up to fulfill. Um, what are you gonna think if that was you? You're gonna think something fishy's going on and they're gonna know that you lied to them about that. What else did you lie to them about? Um, don't say anything that you wanna testify to in court because quite frankly, you may have to, it's at least foreseeable. 
Um, you know, choose the least inflammatory warning. Uh, a big one, making sure that anyone's immediate supervisor, they at least understand what's been going done. A very common scenario nowadays, someone will get fired, will text their supervisor or someone else that they've worked with, and that person is feeling bad for them, wants to be nice, will respond back, oh yeah, that was, that was insane, you should never have been terminated, something along those lines. If that text comes from someone who supervises that individual, that's gonna be exhibit one in any kind of wrongful termination lawsuit. People want to be nice, but at the end of the day, someone's getting terminated, it's not a nice situation. You would very at least want to treat them with dignity and respect and be honest about what's being done. Um, recommendations, if someone really butts head with their supervisor, don't have the supervisor be the one who gives the, gives the, gives the notice. Um, hopefully have at least two people to attend the meeting, someone who can take notes. Um, briefly state what led to this, again, it should not be coming as a surprise. Be brief, don't argue, it should not be a long meeting. Um, you know, be available with information that they might need to know. You know, what about the next paycheck? You know, where are they getting paid through? Are they gonna get paid for their, their vacation? That might depend on your policy, it might depend on state law. Um, but those are things people are realistically are going to be asking about. And don't be afraid to say, I have to get back to you on that if you don't know the answer. Um, and at the end of the day, you may have done everything right, or you may not have done everything right, and you could get a demand letter, a letter from the, letter from the EEOC, or a lawsuit. Um, don't panic. Notify your attorney or get an attorney. Notify your insurance carrier. There's something called Employment Practices Liability Insurance, EPLI. Some churches, some employers don't even realize that they have this. It might be included in your general insurance practices. If you do, take a look at it, reach out to your insurance. Um, check to see if you have any arbitration agreements that might preclude actual you know, lawsuit in front of a jury. Um, if you don't have that and you'd like to consider that, that's certainly a step now to, to consider taking. And making sure that you're saving all relative information, text messages, it's a huge one nowadays, emails, that you're not deleting anything because all of that's gonna be relevant and anything that you do erase after you become aware that, that a litigation is possible can lead to something called spoilation of evidence, which is basically the court saying, you got rid of it, it must have said something bad, Therefore, I might instruct the jury to use it against you. So don't delete anything, save it. And I don't want to hold anybody or right on time. This is my information. I'm also on Twitter if you want to tweet to me um, or email me or, or call me. And I'm happy to stay here and ask, answer any individual questions as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for coming. Thank you.